This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, our guest is retired Lieutenant Colonel Wayne Phelps on his book on killing remotely, the psychology of killing with drones. Lieutenant Colonel Phelps looks at the impact of drones in combat and their effect on the military units operating them remotely. He's interviewed by former U.S. Air Force officer Sarah Kreps. Wayne, it is great to have you here today to talk about your book, on killing remotely. This is a really well-written book, a real tour de force. It canvases everything from the history of warfare to the laws of war to operators' psychologies about drones. Uh, so we're going to talk for a little bit about uh, the book, and I want to hear um, from you about uh, many different aspects of that. Um, maybe the place to start is, uh, why did you decide to write this book on drones? Thanks, Sarah. I'm really excited to talk to you about this today. Um, I was inspired to write this uh, based off of my last job in the Marine Corps. I was the commanding officer of a a drone squadron in Hawaii for for two years. And and during that period, I I sent four four groups of Marines uh, overseas to fight uh, in a contingency against a violent extremist uh, organization. And during that time, uh, we, we contributed to uh, over a hundred strikes uh, on these enemy fighters, and it got me thinking of of how uh, this kind of work actually impacts the operators that are uh, doing these kinds of operations remotely. So then I started researching and expanding that into uh, armed, remotely piloted aircraft or, or drones, as we we commonly know them. So I started researching that. Well, so. There have been a lot of books written on drones, but I haven't come across any that have the perspective that yours does, which really seems that uh, one of the big takeaways from it is the emphasis on uh, how uh, people who fly and operate the drones, how they respond to that um, interaction between kind of themselves, the drone and the target. Uh, and so that that seems to be really kind of a novel perspective. And, and, and it sounds like you come about this from really a kind of firsthand uh, perspective of having interacted with that uh, community. Um, but you start off, I think, in a, in a really nice way by walking through kind of the early history of standoff weapons. Um, so it's a really interesting genealogy and I think tells a really effective story that the interest in motivation and motivation in avoiding hand-to-hand combat and generating advantages is far from new. I wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit about um, that chapter where you really go through kind of that uh, that history where you know we think about where we are today with drones um, and some people refer to that as revolutionary. It seems that what you're trying to paint is a picture that this is much more kind of a, an evolution of something that has been going on for centuries, really. Yeah, sure. So I, I think it's uh, our natural tendency to uh, develop weapon systems that allow us to fight from uh, from further and further distance uh, it keeps the the employers of those weapon systems um, removed from harm's way when possible while still being effective uh, you know and I started off that chapter by by looking at uh, weapons that were employed at distance going back to 
you know, thinking about throwing a rock at somebody and then uh, evolving it over uh, over the history of uh, fighting, really. So you get into the longbow, right, and and the arrow, and and how that was initially um, wasn't well received. It was kind of viewed as a peasant's weapon, and uh, you know, the code of honor and fighting like a knight at the time was, um, uh, you know, was the uh, the way that it was perceived to uh, to fight with honor. So when you introduce something that uh, puts somebody uh, further from harm's way, it was uh, it wasn't well received. And then you start um, start seeing things like uh, the introduction of uh, uh, gunpowder and and, uh, and rifles, and you're fighting from further and further uh, removed from the situation, um, all the way up through you know World War II, where you've got um, you know, V1 and V2 rockets fired by the Germans, you know, the British. Um, the introduction of satellite communications and, uh, and GPS, you know, global positioning systems allowed us to expand that. And then you get into uh, precision guided munitions, such as uh, GPS guided bombs and laser guided munitions. And then really, I, I see. Uh, armed drones is kind of the culmination of all of that, where you have all of these uh, technologies coming, um, you know, coming to play on one system that's uh, fully integrated that allows us to fly an aircraft on the other side of the planet and, and conduct a tactical strike on a target. Uh, so you've got satellite communications, um, you know, GPS-guided or laser-guided munitions. Uh, and then you've got this, um, this persistent platform that can fly for you know, sometimes upwards of a day and send video back to the operators that are seeing this uh, in re- you know, near real time with about 1.8 seconds of latency and what's happening on the other side of the world. So I really wanted to uh, demonstrate that fighting in this manner is, is, is a progression and it's an evolution and it's not... Uh, uh, it's not anything new. Uh, this has always been kind of the the way that we have uh, we've we've trended. Right, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And so I was curious by uh, with this expression that you use in the book, uh, the unchivalrous peasant's weapon. And so, in some ways, kind of this, and that's sort of the longbow that you were associating with that. Um, phrase. And so I guess I wonder, you know, through this kind of theory of transitivity, if the longbow, so we, we have this evolution and that you're drawing between where we are now and there, and you describe that as kind of the unchivalrous peasant's weapon. Would you say that's what the drone is, or you're suggesting that others kind of labeled it that? And in fact, this is a kind of reasonable approach uh to 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 take in a in a combat setting to try to kind of minimize one's own casualties and be as kind of removed from it as possible well i think there's still uh two lines of thought there's there's one that thinks that uh it yes it's it's absolutely a uh, an unchivalrous way to fight where you're there's no skin in the game you, you know you're not risking anything uh, and then the the other line of thought is that it's uh, it provides a tactical advantage uh, for those that are employing it. So there's 
you know, and that's kind of the ultimate goal of fighting is to, to be able to, um, you know, attack your enemies uh, where and when you can while removing uh, your friendly forces from harm's way. So that makes that makes a lot of sense. You know, um, as as I mentioned at the outset, a big focus of the book is on kind of the psychology of this experience of uh, being a, a drone operator. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of what that experience is like and what makes that kind of unusual compared to uh let's say the v1 or the longbow from the perspective of the person who has kind of initiated this form of force so we've we've been employing armed drones um for about 20 years now so we've we've got almost two decades of of fighting in this manner um and what most people experience and what what my experience was in the marine corps was that you know when when I fought in uh, conflicts was that I would physically deploy to that location and I would conduct the fighting in that manner. And I would be uh, away from my family for, you know, six to eight months at a time. And there would be a, a mental transition in the beginning of that where I'd mentally prepare myself to go into harm's way. I would deploy with, uh, you know, another group of Marines. We would be there together. We'd experience this hardship together. And then we would mentally prepare uh, to transition back to, you know, home life in the United States. Uh, so one of the, the the biggest changes that we have seen with the employment of uh, armed drones is that that mental transition occurs on almost a daily basis. Uh, they're particularly within the Air Force where they're flying remotely piloted aircraft at you know say Creech uh, Base near Las Vegas. So that mental transition occurs when you wake up at your house in the morning and then you drive to work, uh, you basically commute to combat and you'll fly a, uh, you know, a combat sortie or a combat mission on the other side of the, of the planet. Uh, you, you might have a strike, you know, uh, during that, uh, that period of time. And then you're mentally transitioning uh, yourself uh, to return home at the end of the day. So a lot of the people that I interviewed talked about this, this strange uh, feeling that uh, they often refer to as deployed in garrison, where you're, you're conducting combat operations from home uh, and you're doing these transitions on a on daily basis, um, sometimes working 12, 14-hour shifts, um, you know, several, several days a week. So you have these, um, these strange strange um you know periods of work where you're you're mentally uh deployed and you're physically still in the united states uh, and you may have conducted a strike at some period during your mission and then you may be in time you know home in time for dinner with your family or or seeing you know a, a soccer game or, or picking up milk from the store or something like that right so it's it's unlike anything that uh, most traditional warriors have ever experienced in the past. So that's just, uh, I think that's the, the biggest change uh, in, in the psychology of how, uh, how these warriors are, are actually uh, fighting. So it seems that um, 
there are pros and cons, like everything in life, there are trade-offs. And so when I was in the Air Force, I came in in the late 90s, and this was after it really still in the midst of Operation Southern Watch and Northern Watch. And these operators were so burned out because they'd go and deploy for a year at a time. And uh, they would miss their kids' birthdays and their wives and their anniversaries. And, and you know, that wasn't necessarily a good thing either. And so, you know, it seems like the ability to go home and celebrate your five-year-old's birthday is a plus. And so is it a matter of uh, this is a, a bad thing or is this just kind of a, an adjustment of psychology? I was thinking as you were talking about that, kind of the lack of boundaries that's in some ways kind of not quite analogous, but now we've met, we've all been working from home uh, during the, the pandemic. And so no one really, the boundaries between your work and your um, kids school and, you know, everything else, you're, you know, maybe you hear the dog barking here in the background. Um, that's all very, I mean, it's, it is somewhat analogous. I'm not in my day to day now going and operating um, or, or conducting uh, a, a war across the world. But I, I, I wonder whether that's just the 21st century and rather than kind of lament that we don't have these boundaries that we just kind of adjust to this world we're in. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're adjusting. Um, I think there are better methods that we, we could use um, <laughs> to this new way of fighting. Um, one example is shift work, right? So a lot of the Air Force squadrons uh, conduct rotating shifts. So rather than being on day shift for 12 hours for your entire tour, uh, you will shift between day shift and, you know, mid shift or night shift. So, uh, and you're, you're doing that fairly routinely. Some squadrons are doing it every six weeks or so. So that's causing your circadian rhythm to, you know, completely be in disarray. So you, you have this constant feeling of jet lag almost, um, you know, it, it takes a, quite a long time for your circadian rhythm to adjust from going from day shift to night shift doing it every six weeks and shifting back and forth is really, uh, I don't think is, is ideal. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of another, uh, another occupation that does this, uh, goes into harm's well, way. Was, oh, no. Well, I was thinking about the case of um, the medical community where you have, so my brother's a doctor and he will work nights for a couple of months and then shift to days and his, it is also a matter of life and death. Um, and there've been some questions in the medical community about, let's say whether residents are working too many hours, but there doesn't seem to be any sense that we should kind of shift from, I mean, it's almost a reality. I think that's where I, I also was thinking about this comparison with hospitals is that you can't not serve people between 11 and seven, 11 at night and seven in the morning, because people can't control when they have a heart attack or can't control when they're going to have a baby. And you can't control when there's a high value asset that's going to pop up in the tribal areas of Pakistan. And so isn't it just that there are these kinds of exigencies of life and death that may just kind of demand more from certain professions? I think you're right. I, I, I also think there's there's probably a better way to to tackle that problem, uh, at least within the, the you know the drone community. Maybe 
maybe you extend the period of time longer than six weeks so someone can adjust. And um, one of the things I think I recommended in the book was that, um, you know, you base it off of seniority, kind of like law enforcement uh, officers do where they, if you've been there longer then you get to bid on which, uh, which shift you want, you want to be on. Uh, I think the constant switching back and forth uh, is, is fairly harmful for, for sleep. And then, and then when you're trying to sleep uh, in the daytime and your family's home, you know, there's, there's going to be natural interruptions as well. So um, but yeah, law enforcement, uh, uh, medical professionals that do shift work. Uh, I think that's, that's a fairly good comparison. Right. You know, one of the things I was thinking about as I was reading the book is that, um, and why I think this book is such a contribution is that uh, so much of the early work on drones was about, again, kind of these legal questions and the effectiveness questions and, you know, whether it was creating backlash, kind of martyrdom effects of creating more dro- more terrorists than they were killing. Um, and there was all this kind of uh, conjecture if it was discussed at all about the effect of of these operations on those who were operating these, these drones. And I think one of the things that was sort of, as you know, often happens with technology, the technology kind of gets out there and then we kind of study the consequences of it later. And I think in this case, there was a sense that, well, these operators are shielded from all of these kind of, uh, psychological impacts of war. Infantry has a much kind of harder time with it because they're uh, in much closer proximity. But I think what you do a really effective job of doing is showing just kind of that this isn't, I don't think you're trying to compare and say that these operators have it as hard as an infantry person, but to say, look, this isn't antiseptic for them. They are experiencing these costs in ways that um, that I think weren't known when this technology started being employed. And you you do a lot of really good interviews. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the uh, kind of sentiment that you collected as part of these interviews and how you actually did your your interviews. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I think initially when, uh, when we started, uh, you know, employing drones in this manner, the sentiment was there's, there's no way that somebody can be, um, you know, experience any sort of traumatic, uh, events or, you know, things like that because they're not physically going into harm's way. Um, you know, there's, there's no reason why anyone should complain about doing this kind of work because their life is not at risk. Um, and, and there was little to no sympathy for those initially that said, Hey, I'm, I'm actually struggling with this. I'm having a hard time or I've experienced, uh, you know, something traumatic that's happened. Um, and I, I think over time that, that that's actually shifted. There's been several studies within the air force, um, by a psychologist named Dr. Chappelle, who's, who's looked at, um, uh, prevalence of PTSD in you know drone pilots and sensor operators and the intelligence community that's supporting uh, these operations and you know initially uh, 2014 he came out and said that uh, there was a you know prevalence of PTSD roughly around four percent um, within the community uh, of those he studied uh, that kind of led to this um, 
introduction of these human performance teams that were embedded within Air Force uh, squadrons. And uh, human performance teams are like a mental health professional, uh, a doctor, a counselor, a chaplain, things like that, that had a clearance that could actually talk about the, the mission and details and and um, the events that occurred with a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these pilots. Um, two years later, Dr. Chappelle did another study, uh, and, and the rate of PTSD went up uh, to 6%. Um, and you're right, Sarah, I'm not trying to compare, uh, you know, the work that um, people are doing remotely to the, uh, the work that is required to deploy into harm's way, whether you're infantry or you're, you know, manning a, a fighter aircraft or, you know, an attack helicopter. Uh, it's not an apples to apples comparison in my mind. Um, I, as, as I say in the book, it's not a suffering competition, right? I, what I'm trying to bring to light is that uh, everyone has a specific occupation within the military. And I think it's important that we recognize the challenges that these folks actually go through uh, in this occupation. Um, one, so I did, uh, I did an anonymous survey of 254 people, uh, 243 of, of which had actually used a drone uh, for a strike or they had, they'd used a drone to call in a strike for something else, right? But the, the key thing was that they had to feel responsible and accountable for the effects that happened during an, uh, an operation. And then I conducted over 50 uh, first-person interviews with people within the community as well. So, you know, qualitative and quantitative research to try to uh, get an understanding and, and hear some of the things, uh, the challenges that they go through. Um, the interviews really brought to light some things that I, I didn't get out of the survey, such as the physiological responses that happened during a strike. And I found that to be fascinating. So, um, several studies that talk about, uh, or several books that talk about uh, physiological responses to lethal uh, force encounters that are face-to-face, uh, whether it's law enforcement or military, right? They, you're going to have um, an increased heart rate, you know, uh, perhaps sweaty palms, uh, auditory exclusions, tunnel vision, uh, things like that, right? So it makes sense that that happens when you're in a fight for your life. When somebody is physically trying to kill you, that makes sense that your your body would respond in that way. Uh, I also heard from a lot of uh, sensor operators, drone pilots, and things like that, that they had similar physiological responses in those situations you know, leading up to a strike, uh, which seems counterintuitive. You know, they're completely removed from harm's way. Why would they experience something like that? Uh, sweaty palms, you know, adrenaline spikes, um, um, auditory exclusions, uh, time distortion, all of those kinds of things still happen. Um, and what uh, the reason I think that it happens is because of the cognitive distance uh, as opposed to the physical distance. I think cognitively they, they feel like they're there. Uh, they, they feel like they're in the fight. Uh, and several of them told me, so they, they were mentally deployed during those missions. Um, so I think the, the physiological response is, is interesting as well. So, you know, one of you talked about cognitive dis, distance, but I was thinking also about cognitive dissonance um, because on the one hand, 
uh, you know, the sweaty palms and the, the adrenaline rush. But one of the, the passages that caught my attention was where, so, you know, the surveillance part of this mission, you may be watching someone for weeks at a time. And you can't, as we were saying a few minutes ago, you can't necessarily, you won't know whether the strike, you can't time when they're going to come out of their, uh, out of hiding and pop up and and be visible um, and that the strike is going to happen. Um, And so the, there was a, a passage where it talked about the person who had surveilled this target for weeks, and then they weren't on the shift when the actual strike took place and kind of that side of things um, surprised me in a way. Yeah, I I interviewed um, one sensor operator who was conducting a mission. uh, Basically, he had the same high value individual or HVI that he was watching routinely, you know, day in, day out, waiting for the right moment or the right time to strike this target when when they could mitigate or, you know, eliminate uh, any sort of collateral damage or civilian casualties, right? So they're, they're, they're waiting for the, uh, the, the right time to strike the target. Uh, that's, that's something that this new capability gives us is tactical patience. And I know there's a lot of uh, discussions about uh, civilian casualties that occurs with, with drones, but it, it, what we don't talk about a lot is the fact that this thing can fly for, uh, hours on end. It's got a, a high definition camera that allows you to uh, to see and pick the right point. And you have an entire team of intelligence folks and lawyers and everybody else on the on the backside that can watch the video as well and, and uh, provide input for when the, the time is right to strike the target. So this this sensor operator that I interviewed um, had been conducting what we call a pattern of life uh, mission. He was trying to uh, determine the pattern of life of this target to figure out the right time, the right time to strike this target. Um, and he said, you know, he, he knew more about this individual than, you know, probably his, um, his roommate, you know, he could, he could pick this individual out in the crowd based off of his gait, his hand gestures, uh, just his normal human behavior. He could pick him out. Um, and he developed, uh, you know, almost this one-sided intimacy with this target. And, you know, he was off on a routine day. And when he came back to work, someone else had, uh, had struck that target. Um, and he had this, this sense of, of almost uh, loss, uh, like that was his target to strike. He'd been working on it. Uh, um, and, and it was uh, like a sense where there was no closure for him. Um, and I think that that was fairly common amongst people that I talked to was, uh, they had a sense of ownership and accountability of uh, these individuals that they were watching. And that doesn't always work well for them. Obviously there's, there's times where uh, I, I talked to another individual who had been working a target for uh, almost two years. And he saw that, you know, the daily intimate human details of this, this individual who was a father, he would see him playing with his kids in the backyard, picking them up from school, things like that you know, mixed in with some nefarious activities that, that, you know, made him a target in the first place. Uh, and he said when, when he eventually did uh, get the authorization to strike that target, uh, it was difficult for him because he knew that that guy was, he was a good father. 
and, and the individual being a father himself could relate to that. Uh, you know, you can see the humanity of that, of that target. Sounds a little bit like the, I don't know if there's an expression for this, but um, the reverse of Stockholm syndrome where a captive kind of gains a sense of sympathy for the captor. And yeah, here it's yeah. kind of the reverse is that you come to see that even amidst this nefariousness, these are ultimately, these are real people. These are fathers. These are people living not that dissimilarly from how we are. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, there was a paper written um, called Avengers and Wrath by uh, Karen House and Dave Blair, who was an Air Force um, uh, RPA pilot. And, and in that article, they refer to that as uh, cognitive combat and intimacy. Uh, in the book, I just refer to it as intimacy with the target. So it's you know, developing this, this one-sided intimacy with this, this target. You know? I don't think it's dissimilar to feelings that people have when they watch a TV show. They feel like they know, you know Ross or Rachel from Friends, right? Um, because you're watching these people for, um, you know, for a long period of time. So one of the things um, that I, I was uh, wondering, I don't know if you've been asked this before, but I often have been asked about um, the convergence between kind of uh, what actually happens uh, and the, the perspective of the operator and a pilot in real life versus the movie Eye in the Sky. Did you happen to see that movie? Uh, is that the one with Ethan Hawke? Uh, I was going to say Judy Dench. Okay. I don't think I've seen that movie, but. So this is, um, so it's, it's, um, you know, it takes, it's, uh, it's these um, a kind of U S UK joint operation uh, or allied operation. And they are watching this. They see the, the suicide bomber put on his vest um, and it's, you know, some of this, the reason why I think that people ask me this don't always know how much of this is real, how much of it isn't, but there's this opening vignette and this kind of nano drone flies in the window to conduct video surveillance. They see this guy put on his, uh, surveillance or his, uh, suicide vest just to kind of eliminate that question of like, is he a bad guy? Is he not? No, we all see that he is a bad guy. Um, and then uh, this it's, it's what you were describing. So they this drone then f- kind of tracks this guy every day for weeks. And um, and then there's this uh, point in the movie um, where they have a clear target that this guy is is unassisted. He's by himself. Um, and the. Uh, kind of wrinkle in this is that at the kind of last minute, this uh, cute little girl who's selling bread uh, goes up within proximity of him to the point where you know that any any strike is also going to kill her. And there's this debate behind the scenes between the uh, between and among the operators about kind of what do we do? Like we this wasn't part of I mean, they had thought they had this was part of the scenario because someone in the movie had gone to basically pay her for the entire day of bread and said, just go home. (laughs) And she didn't know why, of course, go home. Um, 
but these debates behind the scenes about how do we think about some of these wrinkles? And, you know, I think it brings up these questions of like, who's deciding, what are the kind of who's empowered to make these decisions? Um, and what are these decision-making conversations actually look like? Oh, well, that, that's such a great question. Um, I, I definitely talk about this in the book that um, drones are, are usually acting uh, on behalf of someone else, right? Someone is requesting a target to be struck or they're being tasked with striking a target. And they ultimately have the, you know, the authority to say, no, I'm not going to strike that target. Uh, or the pilot in command of the mission does. Uh, but in, and you know, 99% of the instances, someone is requesting that they strike a target on behalf of, you know, a ground force commander or somebody that's uh, declared a individual as a high value individual that needs to be uh, targeted. Um, there's uh, particularly talking about what you're referring to. There's um, there are these things called collateral damage estimates or CDEs. And based off of the amount of collateral damage that can potentially occur during a strike, there is a different decision authority who authorizes that strike. Um, and depending on how important a high value individual is, the decision authority can go all the way up to the commander in chief sometimes. You know, when President Obama you know, was in office, he authorized a lot of a lot of those strikes uh, personally. Um, so that that decision is made uh, on by somebody else. It's not made by the drone crew that they will accept, you know, a certain level of collateral damage, but they're also not the ones that are striking the target. Right? so imagine that you're a pilot or a sensor operator and in that specific situation you're talking about, you have this high value individual and you have uh, a little girl civilian casualty that you know, can potentially occur. And someone comes back and says, yes, we authorize that strike. And uh, now you're put in this position where someone has said, we'll, we'll accept responsibility for that and you have to carry out the deed. Um, so, so you're left with this, um, you know, you, you do your job or do you, you know, deny the, uh, the strike? Um, there are some instances, uh, interviews I had where, where people, you know, actually refused uh, to strike specific targets, whether it was um, because it was a, a, a U.S. A citizen or because there was a known you know, civilian casualty that would occur. Uh, and there are some, some ways, some, some crafty ways that they can do that, right? They can say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm out of fuel or I'm out of ordinance, or they can just flat out refuse to say no. Um, and then there's also instances where they do strike the target. Um, and that's one of the three things that I've determined was likely to cause some sort of a traumatic experience for the operators. Uh, like there's three, um, conducting a pattern of life mission on a target for a long period of time, developing an intimacy with that target, and then eventually striking that individual, um, watching, uh, Friendlies on the ground, you know, friendly forces being wounded or, or killed in action and not having uh, or not being able to prevent that from happening. Right. So I think there's a there's a connection with friendly forces on the ground as well, despite the physical distance. And then the third thing was, you know, any incident where civilian casualties occur. 
And those are the three mission specific events where people told me that they, you know, they had the hardest time of, of dealing with that, whether it was a short term or long term. So those are the incidents that are most likely to produce some sort of traumatic experience, negative response to killing or, or long term uh, that would lead to PTSD. So, I, you know, in a lot of ways that raises questions about kind of, and this gets back to kind of your evolution, you know, one of the next steps that people talk about in the evolution of drones is autonomous drones. And so right now they're semi-autonomous in the sense that they're programmed to kind of fly a particular pattern, um, but there's still a human in the loop when it comes to uh, conducting lethal force. Um, And the U.S. has said that that is something that it would continue to do because some of these decisions are really kind of hard to program into an algorithm. Um, and, and so I was, I was curious kind of where you, where you would stand on that based on kind of your work and uh, your thinking on this kind of question about whether to move to a fully autonomous drone. Yeah. So I was fully aware that, uh, the book might lead to someone to have an illogical conclusion that humans are suffering from doing this work. So let's remove the human from the you know decision-making process and that'll eliminate these problems that humans are having. I, I do not support that at all. I, I think that, you know, war is, is a human endeavor and a human has to make the decision to, to kill another human. Um, I think it's a you know it's a slippery slope that we can go down to have a lethal autonomous weapon that senses the environment, makes the determination all on its own through algorithms to say yes that's a, a legitimate target, and then carries out that strike without any sort of meaningful human input in that entire process. Um, I also think that we are. Uh, not just us as you know in the U.S., but I think across the world we're starting to see countries that don't necessarily feel that way, and they're moving in that direction. Um, the Cargo Two Turkish drone strike in Libya that is under investigation that supposedly happened, you know, in 2020, uh, is potentially the first noted uh, lethal autonomous uh, drone strike that's occurred in history. Um, we also don't have any regulations or international you know, standards that prevent this from occurring right now. Uh, so I, I think that there's, there's a lot of work to be done on that, but uh, my purpose behind this book was to show that this is how humans respond to this. But I think that uh, it should always be difficult to kill another human. And I don't think we should outsource that to, to algorithms and, and uh, machines. Right. No, is it, it? It comes back to this this scene in the movie where um, they're trying to kind of figure out this wrinkle of well, what? How do we think about the fact that now we have this high value asset, but we 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 have this girl and she's going to be killed. She's the collateral damage, and you know, um, there's one perspective in the the movie that says, you know, if you were to do this on a piece of paper and a ledger you know, high value asset here, person here, it would be clear what to do. 
so don't be so human about it. Just kind of like, <laughs> you're getting someone really high value. And, and, and so, so, you know, this is consistent with the laws of war that this is still the military value is in excess of the civilian damaged incurred. Um, and, but what is so evocative of, about this vignette is just that once you see this girl and, you know, she could be anyone's sister, anyone's daughter, anyone's niece, and it really does humanize it. And it really does kind of raise this conundrum is, uh, you know, do you does is, is a better form of war where you take the, the human perspective out and, and just kind of um, make it less personal um, and so, you know, you answered that question that it should always be a human uh, endeavor. But the, I think the reason why, as you say in the book, that, that drones do work that is dull, dirty, and dangerous is that we've now already gone a step in that direction. And as you suggest, if the Russians move in the fully autonomous direction, um, I was actually just looking, uh, researching that case in Libya of the Cargo 2, and my editor said, well, it actually did not operate. They can operate in uh, manual mode or fully autonomous mode, and it appears that a human was still in the loop. But in some ways, the perception is what matters. And if the perception was that it was fully autonomous, now we've kind of gone a little bit further down that slippery slope of, well, they've already done this. Why are we playing with one hand tied behind our backs? Yeah, I think we run the the risk of losing a competitive advantage um, because humans can't uh, compete in the same decision-making cycle uh, as, as quick as machines, right? So are, are we going to allow ourselves to uh, either, I think there's two situations, we either lose our humanity or we lose a fight. Uh, and those aren't, neither one of those are great options. Um, <laughs> I, I still... Uh, fully advocate for humans being the ones that make these decisions, right? Because there's, there's bias and programming coding of algorithms. There's, there's little uh, details uh, in missions that only a human would be able to sense, right? It's not ones and zeros in making decisions of uh, getting to a yes or no kill. It's, there's a whole bunch of context that only humans can pick up on. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to shift, I guess, a little bit to it's still on the question of um, how we think about conflict and some aspect of norms and law. Um, And one of the uh, things you talk about is this question of sovereign airspace. And, And one of the things that I have actually had conversations with people about is how would we, you know, is it, how do we even adjudicate this question of violations of sovereign airspace? Because we have kind of, let's say in the Pakistani government case that they publicly do not want to acknowledge that they may have invited this strike because they have a domestic political uh, argument in favor of not having, not looking like they are green lighting U.S. military action. Um, but, you know, because the U.S. for so long was the most visible actor using um, lethal drone strikes, there were other countries that may have been kind of drawing inferences that were different from um, this perspective that it was lawful. And I'm curious, you know, what's different when there's 
an actual pilot. Um, and we saw this with Gary Powers in 1962. The pro and the con is that when he went down the, over enemy airspace, it was a huge diplomatic of, of, event um, where there's no, and when a drone gets shot down now, there's no such kind of acrimony and escalation. And it seems that that, that can kind of cut both ways in terms of, you know, it gets a little bit not just at the questions of how do we understand sovereignty and whether this has been greenlighted and whether therefore it's consistent with the um, the recourse to force, but it also gets at um, these questions of uh, is it does does using drones because it's kind of you know if 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 this drone goes down over sovereign airspace, you know, <laughs> there's no prisoner of war that becomes kind of a, a big diplomatic event. So there's less caution. And you talk about kind of those different aspects in the book. Um, and so I wonder if you could kind of elaborate on that here in terms of how does it change, how do using drones change the calculus of um, of using force? Well, I, I think we're still figuring out how drones change the risk calculation for, for both employing them over uh, sovereign airspace and what we do in response to if someone shoots down our own drones, right? Um, I, I definitely argue in the book that I, I think that drones, um, you know, the, the common narrative seems to be that uh, it makes it easier for us to go to war uh, with drones, you know, uh, that it's, uh, it's a low risk option and therefore, we're more likely to be involved in more conflicts because we have this this weapon system. Uh, and I argue that uh, that I, I don't think that that's the case. Uh, I've talked about you know I think when when um, President Obama left office, we were conducting strikes and uh, drone strikes in seven different countries: um, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Niger, Iraq. Um, I think that was seven, Pakistan. And, and in those seven countries, um, only one of them were we only conducting drone strikes alone with, with no other use of military force, right? So in all of the other situations you have, uh, either uh, manned strikes that are occurring, you have special operations teams on the ground, you have other military forces that are being employed. Uh, so if, if it were easier for us to just get involved in conflict solely through the use of drones, then why would we employ other assets in those situations? Pakistan's obviously kind of an anomaly, um, but we were also, uh, you could view that as an extension of the war in, in Afghanistan too, where it was a safe haven and kind of had, uh, you know, approval from Pakistan to do that. Um, if there wasn't approval, there were several opportunities for them to shut down our logistics supply train that went through there to get into Afghanistan if they, if they didn't agree with what we were doing. So I, I don't think that it makes this easier to get involved in conflicts um, from the beginning solely through using drones. I think it's a low cost, uh, a nice option once we do decide to get involved in conflicts. Um, it's, you know, similar to cruise missiles or air power to begin with. Uh, it provides uh, an alternative to having boots on the ground. Um, but it also doesn't 
you know, give us a great probability of success in some of these situations, right? For the, you know, the reasons why we would get involved in the conflict to begin with, one of them is obviously probability of success. Um, you know, if you're fighting a traditional, uh, traditional you know, major theater war, perhaps you be able to use drone strikes a lot to achieve your objectives. If you're fighting a counterinsurgency, uh, where you need to influence the population, you're not going to be able to do that uh, solely through drone strikes. On the flip side, when you when you talk about um, risk calculation of um, going to war over an asset being shot down, uh, you know, look at the the global hawk that Iran shot down over the Middle East, or the you know, the RQ-170 that they took control of and landed in their, in their own, uh, you know, country and stole, basically. Uh, in those situations, if there were a, a pilot on board of either one of those aircraft, that would have changed, you know, the risk calculus for the United States. We probably would have responded in a different manner in, in that situation. If you shoot down uh, a manned aircraft over international waters and kill a pilot, there's probably some sort of retaliatory, uh, you know, strike or actions that occur. So in that situation, I think it actually made us less likely to get involved or escalate the situation. So I, th I think there's, there's two sides to that coin. Uh, we're still figuring it out. Uh, uh, I don't think we have a, a solid solution on, you know, how to calculate risk of if someone shoots our, our assets down at this point. So, uh, you know, looking ahead a little bit, um, and we have just about, uh, a little more than uh, 10 minutes, um, so I wanted to kind of be a little forward looking, which may push this a little bit beyond the scope of the book itself, but maybe things that people will want to know having read your book um, is, you know, as you said, that drones aren't always effective and they're not necessarily game changers and they're not causing conflicts uh, where they didn't exist Otherwise, um, a, a good example, actually, of this was was in Pakistan itself, where the uh, government was fighting um, an insurgency and they'd been doing this for years. And the introduction of uh, Chinese made, it seemed it wasn't clear, Chinese parts that were maybe indigenously um, assembled. Anyway, it looked like a Chinese drone. Uh, was used a few years ago to shoot down and, sh and kill three insurgents. That was a war that was already happening. So I think it's sort of to your point that this wasn't, the, the drones didn't now suddenly cause Pakistan to engage in conflict with um, these insurgents. But it does then make me wonder, so we know that from, from the data on drone proliferation that uh, 10 years ago, well, 20 years ago, as you said, no country was using armed drones. And then the U.S. was and Israel and uh, more countries have been both acquiring and using armed drones. Why are they, if these don't matter, why are, why are they so popular? Well, I, I, I definitely think they matter. <laughs> I think um, we just need to look at the uh, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia to, to see, uh, you know, a glimpse into what the future of warfare is going to look like when, um, yeah, it's it's so easy for for countries these days to build an air force that's fairly effective, 
at at a lower cost, and, you know, much significantly lower cost than than what they've been able to do in the past. Uh, and and that was uh, devastating to uh, the. I mean, that, that turned into a lopsided conflict because of the employment of uh, armed drones, uh, loitering munitions. Uh, things like that, and I think there's there's a lot of people that are taking note of that and and looking at um, you know do I need to invest billions and billions of dollars into a, a manned air force or can I uh, build a uh, a drone fleet and have you know achieve the same objectives? Uh, I I think that's probably the direction that we'll be heading in the future, uh, at least for for those uh, countries that can afford that. And, you know, connecting back to this question of sovereignty earlier, one of the real virtues of drones in this kind of gray zone context is that there's a, some kind of plausible deniability of, well, we're not fully engaging in conflict. We're kind of sending in unmanned uh, aircraft. And, um, and so it's possible to kind of uh, engage in some kind of escalation without it actually kind of becoming an out of control conflict in some ways, then it speaks maybe to what this calculation, the risk calculus and the escalatory prospects look like, which is it, the, the conflict and exchanges can happen at a low sort of both. The, it can be more likely in some ways, but also both sides may know that the stakes are lower because fewer people are, are going to, to die. Um, we also did see in the recent Gaza conflict that Hamas was using uh, drones, and you mentioned Libya. And so, you know, proliferation means in part that these these actors can kind of overcome some of these asymmetric disadvantages that they have in the lack of resources with now really increasingly affordable and capacious off-the-shelf drones. Yeah. And is there any way around that? I mean, so... You know, if the U.S. is faced with that, um, you know, what, what, what's, what's the recourse? <laughs> well, we've been faced with that for years, right? I mean, ISIS has been employing uh, drones right. in Iraq, and they've modified them to drop uh, mortars and uh, bombs and, and things like that. And, you know, initially there was, um, there was no counter, or at least the counter, uh, the, the target to the weapon to target match was such an overmatch. You know, you're not shooting a Patriot missile at a, a you know, a $2,000 DJI, uh, you know, drone. So th- there's been a rush to develop counters that are uh, similar to commercial off the shelf um, that can, that can answer these, um, these situations. And there's still drone strikes that are happening in Iraq, you know, um, that are, uh, like group two, group three size, you know, a uh, thousand pound kind of drones that are flying for long distances, pre-programmed through GPS and, and hitting specific targets. Um, and, and you can you know, follow the news. They're, they're all over the place these days, whether they're hitting airfields in Erbil or, or close to the embassy in Baghdad. Um, you know, that's, that's the new threat. That's the, the new IED, it's the new AK-47, it's the you know new suicide vest, and it's it's very attractive for non-state actors because now they don't even have to risk as much to employ these things. They're commercially available. You can uh, get an autopilot off the you know off the internet. Uh, you can completely 
turn it into a dark drone so it's not emitting any sort of RF energy that can be disrupted through cyber RF defeat techniques. Um, so you have you know, basically a, a, a poor man's cruise missile. Uh, there's little defense to that right now. So we're, we're playing catch up on the counter to this. Right. And it seems like, you know, the when there have been issues of proliferation and arms control in the past, it was involved in kind of the U.S., USSR, U.S., Russia. Um, now, these are just so accessible and the actors that are using them aren't really part of our international governance structure. Is the I mean, it just is there any sort of, you know, governance response to this or is it just kind of an up? Offense, defense, measure, countermeasure. Now we're developing countermeasures that can try to address this threat. As you said, it's a, it's 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 very real. It's not a weapon of mass destruction, but it's a, it's very is a weapon of disruption in the sense that they can fly. These drones can fly over typical kind of vehicle barriers um, unless manufacturer has geofencing. Um, and and so it is quite disruptive. And it's, it seems like there's not really an obvious kind of uh, governance countermeasure, and, and so is it really in the hands of kind of the defense to figure out exactly what you're saying, the, the appropriate defense for this? I think it is. Uh, I mean, the the kinds of governance that would work is not going to be effective against non-state actors, uh, you know, gangs, criminals, um, you know, they're they're being employed in uh, you know in Mexico by cartels to attack police and mm-hmm. attack other other cartels. Um, governance, I mean, you can, that's not going to affect that, right? They're they're already commercially off you know available. Uh, they can modify them to be uh, deadly. Uh, no sort of arms control is going to affect that. And, you know, where arms control would be effective, I think, is when you start getting into larger systems that can launch, um, you know, precision-guided munitions, like missiles and stuff like that. But even then, you know, China and China is one of the largest exporters of uh, drones, uh, similar to, you know, reapers and predators. And they're not going to sign on to something like that. And they've actually used uh, our unwillingness to sell to some of these countries as an, an advantage to sell to them, right? So they've got this market where the U.S., prior to pulling out of the MTCR, wouldn't sell to these countries. So China said, well, we'll fill that void and we'll sell we'll sell you an armed drone. Well, uh, Wayne, I don't want to end on such a uh, ominous note, but uh, it, it strikes me as probably a realistic note. Um, so I think you really have done an incredible job in the, the research and writing of this book. Um, everything we know, I think, is that uh, drones really are the future of war. And so this is a this book on uh, killing remotely is a, is a, is a great resource, um, given all the rich interviews you've done and the way you've woven this into a really readable um, manuscript. So we really appreciate that you've um, spent this time with us, and I really recommend that everyone uh, pick up a copy and read it. Thank you, Sarah. Really appreciate your time today. Great questions. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. Be sure to check out our Book Notes Plus podcast on the latest episode, an interview with the late columnist Robert Novak. He was nicknamed, quote, the Prince of Darkness by friends and enemies alike in Washington, D.C., 
In this interview from 2007, he discussed his memoir titled The Prince of Darkness, in which he tells stories about his 50 years as a reporter, television personality, author, and conservative commentator. <laughs> 